Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm going to the ball. Have you received it, sir? I've received it, thank you. Thank you. Controlled it effortlessly. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) And the voice you can hear, guys, is that of John Sperling, who's wrote a fantastic book, Get It On, How the 70s Rock Football. So welcome, John, and welcome all to Book Corner Extra Time. Thanks, Gabby. Thank you for having me on. I love the front cover, and I want to talk about the front cover first. Mm. Sheer Joy, Patrick Barclay. Fascinating, funny and poignant Henry Winter, two of the top writers. Uh, that must have been fantastic for them boys to pass that prize on to you. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, you know, when, when you when you ask um, people to take a look at the book and hopefully provide a kind of nice pre-publication quote, you know, you, t- you, you take a bit of a gamble, don't you? Because yes. it was the first time that anyone, um, apart from my editor, had actually really looked at it. <laughs> yeah. So you you take you take you take your life into your own hands in that respect. I was, you know, I was I was thrilled by what came back. Um, with, with from from you know from Patrick and Henry, and as you say, you know you've got Guillaume Balaga and Amy Amy Lawrence as well on there. So yeah, I was very very pleased by that. And and you know for me as well, one of the joys of writing the book was that Barry Davis agreed to write the forward as well because for me Barry Davis is the 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 yardstick by which other all other football commentators should be judged and when he wrote the forward I was uh, I was thrilled to bits there's certain things about this book which as you know as 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 you might tell from reading it I, I thoroughly enjoyed um writing this book and and getting you know getting Barry Davis to agree to write the forward was probably the um uh, you know, they're, they're one of the, one of the best parts, as well as getting the uh, the pre-publication blurb off off writers who are who are far more um, far more successful and far more um, well known than me. <laughs> so I was very pleased with that. What is your back catalogue? I mean, in your background, you're an Arsenal fan, aren't you? And you have written uh, books before. This isn't your first book, is it? No, this is my this is my seventh book actually. Yeah. So I've written books mostly mostly on Arsenal. Um, I wrote the um, the history of Highbury, Highbury N5. I wrote that when they when they left Highbury to move to the Emirates. Um, I wrote Rebels for the Cause, um, which also ironically has Charlie George on the front of it as well, the yeah. same as this one. And I've written uh, a well a World Cup book. Um, but you know, I've been a, a freelance football writer for for 25 years, and this one, um, as in Get It On, as uh, I've had on the back burner for 25 years, and I've I've done interviews, as you can see, way back as far as about 1997, I think I started. Um, so I'd had the interviews, but I could never quite pull it together in a in a structure. Um, but eventually I, I, I got there. Lockdown kind of like nudged me in the right direction with that, like I think it did a lot of authors. And we finally got it over the line. But 25 years it took to uh, from, from my starting to think about it to finishing it. How long did it take you to draw up the artwork? I love the way Get It On is, is written in, in kind of 
orange on on the black it really works john sperling your name is like green on the black it really works how the 70s rock football the title it really yeah. works i love the writing of it it just looks when you look at that book in a shop it just says pick me up and buy me <laughs> and then read yeah. me because it's a fantastic yeah. it really is a fantastic cover that's where we're starting yeah, I mean that one is 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 a bit of a um, a, a combination between me and the the publishers really because I suggested the you know the uh, the seventies writing that is you know the triple spoke um, yeah. style because that's what that's how um, what ITV did for their nineteen seventy World Cup coverage. So if you look back at YouTube, yeah. the the, um, the the font is is like that. So that was that was me, but it's the publishers who came up with the kind of the burnt orange and brown um, colouring. Because if you look back at photos when you were kids or, you know, you're, for your listeners, if you're this, you know, this is a many sort of fans of 1970s football, maybe parents' photos, the 70s was the era of burnt orange and brown. Yeah. Um, and I think the, um, you know, in terms of carpets and wallpaper and decor and that sort of thing, and I think the cover screams 19, 1970s at you bef- even before you, you look at what's going on in the actual photo. <laughs> it certainly also screams, let's have a rock, because on the front of it, you've got Terry. I'm not too sure. It looks as though he's having a pop at Charlie. It, it looks like Peter Story, and I don't know who the other Arsenal player is in the background, just behind the arms. And and I did say to to Terry's brother Kenny, I didn't realise yeah. your kid was a bit of a scrapper. And he said, "Ah, oh, Gab, he was a bit fiery, was Terry. I love him, but he was a bit yeah. fiery. He's a Bradford lad, he, isn't he? He was. That is that's Bob McNabb. So okay. you've got Peter Story yep. on the on the left, cold eyes or snouty. Yep. You've got Charlie George uh, on the right, as you say, and Bob McNabb. And you know, for, for that, again, the publishers um, found this one. I think it's an amazing, amazing photo because you know it, it sums up the title getting getting it on in terms of you know having a having a having a brawl having a fight because it's a, a very very combative decade um obviously it's in homage to to the song my favorite song from the 70s uh, um by by t-rex but also it's about getting it on the telly and i think that um uh you know the book talks about the the beginning of the era of of uh of color tv which elevates football to, to a different level but if you look closely obviously at the front cover you've got all the all the rubbish on the pitch presumably toilet bits of toilet roll which yeah. used to fly around didn't it at um at will during 1970s matches it certainly did. There was never any toilet <laughs> roll in the toilets at Sevens and Magic because no, they were all thrown no. on. I mean, now if you're in Argentina, they throw anger and aves on the pitch. We in the 70s threw toilet rolls. That's right. But That's it, right. It's a... so many, you look, you watch it footage, just so many toilet rolls flying around and there's so much rubbish on the pitch, either paper or mainly toilet roll. I'm, I'm amazed that anyone had any left. Absolutely. You reference T-Rex and get it on one of the great artists of the 70s and get it on got to number one on the 24th of july 1971 and it was their Mm. second number one wasn't it mark bowling was an absolute legend in fact the tree that that the car hit because it was gloria that was driving the car wasn't it mark was the passenger yeah that's correct yeah alan hudson a few years before that got breathalyzed under that tree 
it was not far from where Huddy used to live in, uh, Is in that Wimbledon. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 I mean, Mark, uh, Mark, Mark Boland. It's things because I interviewed Terry O'Neill, the photographer, and and Mark Boland apparently always wanted his hair like like George Best's, but um, yeah. Terry O'Neill had to point out that unfortunately Mark Boland's was was too curly for uh, for to him to have a, a full bestie, so that uh, that never happened sadly. But a lot of a lot of musicians. I mean, what I found out also was that although he was no football fan, David Bowie was a big fan of, of Peter Osgood in the way that he would hold himself and conduct himself and ha- you know with a swagger. Yeah. There's a bit of bit of overlap between glam rock and football. Um, you know, particularly down to the long hair and the kind of camera hogging habits that footballers started to get in the 70s. I think. I've always said to the boys, because I've done uh, 19 uh, interviews now with 70s football players and a, a regular uh, podcast to do with Alan Hudson and mm. Terry Curran. And I always say to the boys that all the footballers wanted to be rock stars and the rock stars yeah. wanted to be footballers. And to be yeah. fair, the footballers were the rock stars back in those days. Yeah. They were in Lucky yeah. and they were in Shoot magazine. They were in every Jackie magazine. They were on the front cover of everything, the footballers, and especially our Maverick players and Charlie being one of them. He lost a finger in a lawnmower accident, didn't he, Charlie? Bless him. He did. I think that was when he was at Southampton. That was that was that was later later on in the seventies. Mm. Yeah, but it but it is, and it's such a visual age, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, the, the football has started. This is we're talking ten years, aren't we, after the ending of the the maximum wage for footballers yeah. in which in in the early sixties. So, by the seventies, if you're a top flight footballer, you're earning a, a tidy amount. I think I, I worked out from talking to a few of them and and Peter Osgood. I think they won they won what will be around now about seventy five thousand a year you know a, a tidy tidy way definitely but not enough to kind of catapult them out of the orbit of of average you know normal football fans and i think that's that's probably because in the book you know i don't i don't claim that the 70s was necessarily a golden era in every way you've got the hooliganism you've got racism you've got the stadium not in great shape but i think what um what is what is attractive about 70s football is it's probably more of a level playing field and that the players themselves are more have more in common with you know the fans that watch them than 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 they do today um but it, it's certainly getting more visual in the sense that you'll you'll see them as you say on magazine covers terry o'neill takes that famous picture the clan which huddy as you mentioned was in alan hudson uh, was in that, wasn't he? Rodney Marsh as well, Jeff Hurst, um, uh, uh, Dave, David Webb um, uh, as well. And, you know, it's it, it represents them how much more swagger, if you like, top flight footballers are are having or getting, if you like, by, by, by the time the 70s come around. Absolutely. And the, uh, the, the panel for the 1970 World Cup that we just touched upon yeah. earlier, that was iconic because and it, and it was groundbreaking wasn't it because it was just the bbc and i love the story in the book about the uh the cup final run <laughs> and it yeah. warned the players it warned the fans it was the tv companies wasn't it that's right i mean barry davis now calls it the calls it the punch-up final because <laughs> uh you know the expectation was that bbc was the more established obviously of the the two broadcasters and bbc claimed that they had um, a monopoly over over interviews well they did before the game but they didn't <clears throat> after the game um and itv thought that they would they would they would move in so uh, malcolm allison was signed up by itv who later became part of the panel and was coach in the final 
and he gave uh, he gave the uh, the ITV crew uh, smuggled in some track suits and a wheelie bin, and then the ITV crew sat incognito on the Manchester City bench, and then when the final whistle went. Um, you know, they made a move for, for Neil Young, who scored the winner in the 69 Cup final for, for Manchester City. Oh, yeah, and all hell broke loose. I mean, one of the one of the guys got a broken tooth. The, you know, the the, sound, the studio guys, their plugs were pulled out, camera lens smashed, and um, it really set the scene. And I think Jimmy Hill, who was um, uh, controller, uh, so was was kind of sports, um, uh, in charge of sports at LWT, realised that, ITV were onto something, and so him and John Bromley um, at, uh, at ITV decided to start looking at other ways that they could trump BBC. And one of their ways was by pulling together this amazing panel for the for the 1970 World Cup of, of Malcolm Allison, Bob McNabb, um, Pat Crer, and Derek Dugan, and you know Jimmy Hill himself appeared, all shepherded by a, a pipe smoking headmasterly Brian Moore. Um, but I mean, it was it was it, it, it heralded the dawning of, of, you know, a more flashy breed of, of, of kind of baby boom footballer, if you like. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it was the, the way the panel spoke to each other, minus the swearing, perhaps, was uh, was much how football fans spoke to each other down the pub. And, and that had never been seen before because the BBC was always quite kind of stuffed shirt. Um, and traditional, whereas the panel was like a kind of like a breath of fresh air. And, you know, Malcolm Allison smoked on air. They were he was racking up a massive bar bill. So he'd often go on having drunk champagne. And, uh, you know, Brian Moore talked about the exotic aftershaves wafting around. He, des- he described it as the, the kind of scent of early 70s man, <laughs> which I think summed it up quite nicely, actually, in that studio. I think Brian done a fantastic job keeping all those egos together because there was not just a lot of aftershave uh, wafting around. There was a lot of testosterone wafting around there as well because they were big boys, weren't they? And I don't mean in size, but when you're looking at Jimmy Hill, absolute pioneer, when you're looking at Big Mel, one of the most charismatic managers and coaches, and not just 70s, of all time, Derek Dugan was no shrinking violet. In fact, it was Derek right. that introduced the uh, the shirt logos, wasn't it? The advertising on the shirts, Kettering tyres. Yeah, and yeah, then, no, exactly. And then he had to take it off, but he put KT and he, he tried to convince the authorities it was uh, Kettering Town, not Kettering tyres. And yeah. Paddy Crelland, what a what a character Paddy was as well. And and Bob, of course, would have been out there, but he didn't quite make the cut. So he was back giving the, the, the players analysis. So it was a very iconic panel. And some of yeah. them stayed over then in, in 1974. Incredibly That's OK, right. England uh, quali- well, didn't qualify. We won the World Cup in 66 under a Labour government. And Wilson always used to um, bring that out, didn't he? That England are very successful with the Labour government. But when we uh, got beaten 70, brought the government down. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, Harold Wilson spent much of the later 60s kind of courting the Beatles and, and George yeah. Best because he wanted to appeal to younger voters. Yeah. You know, he's not the, not the last politician to try and appeal to, to you know, to younger voters through sport and, and music, is he? Yeah. Um, and he, he famously said after 66, have you noticed that England only ever win the World Cup when there's a Labour government? Um, so <laughs> in 1970, yeah, he put a lot of thought into when the um, election would be and he just he plumped for 
um, the, the kind of day, was it day or two days after yeah. the quarter final against mm-hmm. against West Germany? Well, you know, he was convinced that had England won, you know, they were two 0 up, weren't they, against West Germany? Yeah. He'd have he'd have won the election, but obviously, um, Gert Muller um, scored the scored the winner at three two, and um, yeah, I mean Wilson was convinced that because of that defeat people became more introspective and started to think, well, if we're no longer champions of the world, you know, what does that say about the state of uh, state of England as a, as a country? Um, and uh, yeah, he, he, he thought it made people more introspective. Um, and, and it, it, you know, it, it was kind of for people, maybe the start of declinism, in other words, thinking that maybe things were better in the past and in football, I guess that was the case with with the World Cup. But I think, to be honest with you, you know, I spoke to quite a few players like Jack Charlton and Brian LeBone and that sort of and Alan Ball about it, and they they didn't buy it. I mean, Brian LeBone, who was Everton captain, was uh, you know I, th- I think he went, I think he went to Union. I think he was into economics in quite a big way, yeah. and he said no, it's because a couple of days before the election there was a um, that the balance of payments was proved to be in deficit, um, and what it showed is that Labour wasn't necessarily handling the economy as, as well as they as well as they claim they were and um you know in general elections it's normally about the economy isn't it that's what normally britain makes or breaks a government but no harold wilson was was convinced to the end of his life at that 70 world cup cost him the election but he did get back in didn't know the government after uh, ted yeah. Leith had a go he took us into yeah, europe and um, when we're looking at europe england football team's done a great job of conquering europe in the 70s didn't they well, they did. I mean, that's the remarkable thing that as 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 the it's almost like an inverse law. As as quickly as the as the England national team declined, um, English clubs in Europe did did really well. I mean, several clubs: Arsenal, uh, Leeds, uh, Tottenham won won. You know, the uh, Liverpool won UEFA cups um, and and fairs cups as it was called and then of course at the end of the decade you had Nottingham Forest winning under Cluffy and uh, and Bob Paisley leading Liverpool to 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 the European Cup I mean it's interesting I mean I, I'm going to cover it perhaps more in my in the 1980 yeah. 80s follow-up to this but why was it that at the time where England the national team struggled the you know the, the teams in Europe had did, did well and, and Clough was of the opinion that there, there are fewer variables in club football you have you know you have your squad in England you can pick from a wider pool of players you know the manager picks the team and if you're England boss you can often be swayed by what the press think and I think that's what Don Revy's issue was that at Leeds everything was fixed you know nothing ever changed you know right down to the players whereas at England you never seem to quite know the best style the best players or, or what he was, what he was doing, and for someone who was so, you know, set in their ways at Leeds, he was then the exact opposite as England manager. It's a, it's a, a, a it's strange, but um, yeah, it, it's true that England English clubs did very well in Europe in the seventies. I think you're right. I think the the dynamics of of managing a club team compared to a national international side are completely different. Whereas Don, yeah, those Leeds players were were all his family they were like his, yeah. his sons um and he would play they would have karaoke nights 
they would have uh, carpet bowls and bingo, etc. Yeah. But when he tried to bring that to the national team with the Maverick mm. players that we got, uh, Alan Hudson, Frank Worthington, Alan Baller go down Millionaire's Row and talk to Bernie uh, Bernie Winters rather mm. than go and, and play the carpet bowls. It didn't work. Yeah. Don was no. the boy up for choice and he didn't really know what to do. But what he did do is that he had a, a get-together at an England training camp and he saw Rodney Marsh, uh, Tony Curry, Alan, Hads- Alan Hudson, uh, Stan Bowles and Frank Worthington, uh, that they were no longer part of, of his plan. Now, when yeah. you put those players and say, look, you're no longer in my plans, and also yeah. Ramsey was no fan of the Maverick player as well. No. And I think no. that when you look at the talent that England had, that both Ramsey and Reevee overlooked, and you could yeah. argue a little bit that Ron Greenwood brought back, he certainly brought back Tony Curry because Tony only yeah. played the one game, uh, Switzerland uh, away under Reevee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan yeah. played two games under Reevee. Supermax scored five goals and was never seen again. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It is It is incredible. That's right. I mean, that, that's, that I think runs right through the book, the kind of tension between the, the new breed of footballer born you know after world war ii that you know they don't they didn't live through the great depression they haven't done national service yeah. and it's so you've got the new um baby boom if you like footballer born after world war ii Con- in in conflict if you like with with old school managers yeah. who don't really understand them yeah. you know they you know as i think rob steen said it who wrote an excellent book called the mavericks yeah. that they wore their um non-conformity as a, as a badge of honor they wanted to do their own thing. They were entertainers. You know, Rodney was Rodney Marsh said. You know, he he, he was he was more keen on the on um, entertaining the crowd than actually ensuring that Manchester City say won won the league in in seventy two. And he was never going to change. Mm. Um, whereas Ramsey and Revy were absolutely team men, um, and they were they were all consumed with winning rather than style. Now, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously Ramsey won the, won the World Cup. Revy won m- multiple trophies with, with, um, with Leeds. But you, you get the impression they were, they were, as men, they were very, very uptight. Um, you, you know, down from with the way Ramsey spoke to, to Revy's superstitions. And he almost felt, had they relaxed a little bit and perhaps relaxed, the, you know, the, the, the Mavericks, if you like, when they were around them, things might have turned out differently yeah I think um, but, but but neither but not but neither the mavericks nor ramsey or revy were, were ever going to change you know all, all in their different ways they're very very stubborn aren't they yeah i think that, that you right. are you are what you are aren't you you know you you have that that persona and you have that you know when you look mm. at some of the managers uh i mean revy was the one because you know for me the greatest team of the 70s. I know Liverpool won more, but I think mm. Shankly and Reevee, I think they won the same amount of, of cups, if um, if I remember rightly. Mm. For me, Leeds United are the greatest team that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And and I, I, I look at it in the way that that Leeds team had everything. If you wanted to play football, they'd play football. If, yeah. they, if you wanted to fight them, they'd, they'd fight you. Yeah. And they were a fantastic group of players players 
In yeah. those days, we didn't carry the squads that we do, say, for instance, Manchester City do today with 30 internationals. And Leeds, exactly yeah, Leeds were fighting on all fronts. When I'd done an interview with Alan Clark and I was talking to, to Sniffer, and, and he says, yeah, but Paul, we were going for the treble pretty much every season. And I think that's yeah. what Reeve was, was trying to do. He wanted yeah. to win everything. But then when he went to manage England, he just... He, he he lost his way, I would I would suggest, Rev. He lost his way because his philosophy yeah. of football changed. Where he, had it not changed, then he would have been successful. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. And I think also, but when when Leeds won the title in '74, I think that he did realise that actually perhaps Leeds had played with his shackles on in terms of style. And, um, you know, that Leeds team of 74 was, was fantastically entertaining and scored, you know, lots, lots of goals on the way. But, um, you know, it was almost, you know, <laughs> they're, they're mud sticks, isn't it? And, and they, they were still called, you know, dirty Leeds, even though um, actually their disciplinary record in 74 improved a great deal. And even even Brian Clough, you know, Revy's mortal enemy, if you like, admitted that their their style in '74 um, had been had been better. Yeah, I think again, I, I think there's it's almost a myth, and 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 to this day, you'll still see on social media, dirty leads, dirty leads, but yeah, yeah. All the teams had hard men in the yeah. midst. I mean, yeah. people will say, did. yeah, Johnny Giles, he was a silent assassin. Yeah, but Johnny Giles had his ankle and his leg broke uh, against yeah. Johnny Watts at Birmingham City and Eddie McCready at Chelsea. Now, yeah. there was no greater hatchet man than, than Ron Chopper Harris. Peter Story no. was no shrinking violet. You got Norman Bite, your legs under. But it was almost as though in the 70s where... I think you're right. The colour TV was coming in. Football was a whole new ball game. I know for lots of people, they think it started in 92, but it started in 1888, the Football League did. But it was, <laughs> yeah. it was just getting to the, the cameras and match of the day. And they was almost yeah. trying to sell the game by, by giving tags to football clubs and players and lovely uh, chaps that you wrote talking of tags Paul Trevelyan literally did give the tags to yeah. Don didn't they have you interviewed Paul it took me 37 minutes to get a word in with Paul absolute legend and I did I did um, private yeah. message Steve Perryman and said, Steve, absolute respect. I think it took you 25 minutes to get a word in. But Blimey, Steve is yeah. twice, three times, ten times the, uh, the person that I But what, that what I amazing stories Paul Trevelyan has, to, has to tell. I mean, he, he started off trying to... Because Paul Trevelyan, I don't know if your listeners know the full story. If, if they listen to your show, they will. But he, he, he worked for Mark McCormick, the, yeah. the cartoonist, the visual artist out in America. And when he was out in America, he started to go to American sports. I think he went to the Cleveland Indians. And what he yeah. saw is that their approach to sport was very different from English football. So they'd give out free caps, biros. They'd have events, you know, dances, dancing troops on, on the pitch beforehand. Um, they'd have tailgate parties in the car park. He said, this is nothing like English football. So he went to Bill Nicholson at Tottenham. 
and said, uh, I'd like to introduce some ideas because he knew him um, because Paul Trevelyan was a big Tottenham fan and grew up around around that area. Um, and, you know, Bill Nicholson said, no, he said, we're not we're not Tiller girls. Thanks, Paul. But a mate of mine is Don Revy. And Don Revy was always very, very commercially aware because um, I don't know if we're going to go on and talk about this, but he also Absolutely. embraced Admiral, you know, the replica kit craze as well. So Paul Trevelyan managed to convince <clears throat> the most hard-bitten squad in football um, and, you know, and ruthlessly professional and, and Don Revy to introduce sock tags, um, target balls, uh, choreographed warm-up routines as, 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 as well. Um, and, you know, it took a while. I mean, in the book, I, I, I talk about when Jack Charlton basically tried to bodily remove him when he yeah. was trying to talk. But in the end, Jack Charlton came around to the idea because I think that Leeds players realised that it was time that they probably embraced the more aesthetic you know, a, di a more a more kind of joyful side of the game, and um, you know, Paul Trevelyan, he he helped, he got the the guy who um, produced Tom Jones's records. What was his name? Les 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 Reed. Oh, what's his name? Les, Les Reed. Reed. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to produce Leeds's um, <clears throat> 1972 FA Cup final record. So they had a lot of fun with with Paul Trevelyan, and much of what Trevelyan's ideas were, you know, a bit more razzmatazz around the game, is part and parcel. <clears throat> excuse me, a football, a football today. Um, and I think Revy realised that, but he then put a break on Trevelyan at the end of 72 because he thought it was going, you know, <clears throat> a bit far. But then Revy was approached by Bert Patrick from Admiral who convinced him that um, he could do some work and some modernisation, if you like, of Leeds's yellow away kit. And so, you know, you had Admiral's first major um, in, intake or instep into the, the uh, replica kit world was with, with Leeds United, where they had the, you know, the stripes going down the arms and, and that kind of thing. And obviously the Admiral revolution um, took off. And then when Revy took over England, um, Admiral did England's um, uh, kit there as well with the blue and red uh, tram lines going down the arms, which was quite controversial in some quarters because the likes of Emlyn Hughes and Alan Ball reckoned that it was more British than English. Yeah. So, you know, Revy was, you know, for people who say he's stuck in his ways, well, he might have known what he liked in football uh, in terms of the, the football play, but he was also commercially mm. very, very modernist, I think, and, and very, very attuned to what was going on. Absolutely, and and also the self belief because Don was um, very very superstitious, wasn't he? And and yeah, when they when they first had the sock tags, Don wasn't going to go with it because he he thought that it made Leeds look a little bit silly. And um, when Paul yeah. turned up, he said, "We're not going to we're not going with it, Paul." And he said, well, "Why?" And he told him, he says, "Don, you're a loser." Don, you're a loser, Don, you're a loser. I'm going to go at him and tell the first Leeds United player that you're a loser. When I, when I, <laughs> exactly, he said, when I spoke to Dixie and I was talking to Dixie and I said to Dixie, Dixie, did you doubt yourself when you scored three goals against Arsenal to give you 60 league goals in the season? George Cantwell scored 59, that was in the second division. Did you self-doubt? And Dixie said, Paul, you wouldn't be in my team, you're a loser. So it was almost Dixie Dean talking through yeah. Paul Trevelyan to Don Revy yeah. and Don then back down and the sock tags and, and it was almost as though it was 
the comfort blanket as well, if you like, that they, yeah. they were clinging on to something because he was giving them that self-belief and saying, you're going to win, you're going to win the FA Cup. You adopt this, you're going to win the FA Cup. He told the Tottenham players that they're going to win the double yeah. and Bill Nicholson yeah. had a pop at him because the season before they didn't. But again, yeah. he installed not just the brands and things like you've alluded to, but he put that self-belief in there as well. Yeah. He's an incredible, incredible talker, uh, Paul Trevelyan is. And Jack Charlton said they, they could, he spoke so quickly they could, they could barely understand what he, what he said. But his whole thing, wasn't it, that Leeds were a great team and he wanted to rebrand them into, into yeah. Super Leeds. So I think, you know, the thing is, what I haven't mentioned as well, is the names on the back of the tracksuits, which, yeah. you know, we Paul. it's just par for the course these days, isn't yeah. it? But back then... Um, you know, having names on the back of the tracks is wow. You know, that's some, that's new, that's that's modern. So I think much of what Paul Trevelyan or or the Beaver to give him his his seventies monica there um, is introduced is, is what we what we take for granted now. And I'm really pleased in the book actually. Paul did a couple of photos for me. I'm just opening. I've got a copy in front of me now where you know he's there with um, his sock is uh, his his um, target ball. Yeah. Um, in in the bag because obviously they're you know more than fifty years old now. I think he's scared it'll perish if it comes out. <laughs> but also his, his Norman Hunter um, themed um, shin pads, the bites your legs um, shin pads. But unfortunately that never got beyond the prototype stage. But I uh, it's a shame, isn't it? Imagine Norman Hunter going out in those onto Abs- the pitch. Absolutely. But Terry Cooper designed a boot as well, didn't he? Yeah, you yeah. You know, yeah. The, the, there was so many things going on and Trevelyan yeah. was really in the thick of it. There. I mean, Jimmy I Hill was in the thick of it as well because, of course, yeah. Jimmy rebranded Coventry City with the Sky yeah. Blue Revolution and Big Mal rebranded uh, Crystal Palace. So the 70s... Big was Mal in, at Crystal yeah. Palace. I mean, that should be... A, that, that should, that, that's worthy of a movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of a lot of your listeners will know that that Big Mal jumped in the the team bath with Fiona Richmond, who Absolutely. was Paul Raymond's muse in Soho. Um, but it, but he also arranged a match between uh, um, the the um, Planet of the Apes eleven and um, a team of Playboy bunnies. Yeah. Um, you know that the photos are on are online. It sounds too crazy to be true. But that was that was that was Malcolm Allison. I think Jim Cannon, the Palace captain, said no other manager could take a team to two successive relegations but mm-hmm. still be regarded there as a as a cult hero because he he redesigned the the kit, didn't he? he they were once yeah. the Glaziers, yeah. weren't they? The yeah, Glaziers, they yeah, not the Glaziers, the Glaziers, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they they suddenly became the Eagles. So yeah, rebranding is is going on. In, in several areas in, in the 70s, it is, it is a, a cutting-edge decade in, in many ways as well. I think it's the biggest cutting-edge decade that we've known in football. You know, I know that these days, you know, replica kits, they change every season and now teams have three or four. But, you know, back mm. then they were just coming out. They were at the cusp of, of everything. Football yeah. was changing and and the managers and the coaches and the players were there doing it in real time. And, and three yeah. great examples there of management that, that were doing that. And then you had other managers, of course, with Shankly and Brian Clough. I mean, Cloughy uh, with um, 
he, he was on everything, was he? Mark, Michael Parkinson and Muhammad yeah. Ali was there, and he was like, yeah. cloth, cloth, I've had enough. <laughs> He's yeah, like, yeah. You know, what, what are you going to do, Brian? I want to fight him. But that was yeah. cloughy, cloughy was, that was him. cloughy was probably the biggest maverick of the 70s. Well, I think, I said, before I wrote the book, I thought long and hard about it, and I, I said to my, my editor, I said, well, am I going to go with this? And I went with it. And what, I, what my view is, is that Brian Clark... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Not just the biggest football personality of the 70s. He was the biggest personality of the 70s, full stop. Absolutely. Because he was, like you just said, on on. And in everything, yeah. he was a it was a pundit with ITV. He had a, a Daily Express column. He was on on the ball, which was the ITV's lunchtime football, um, you know, preview program, you know, their their version of Football Focus. Brilliant show. Um, you know, he was impersonated by by Mike Yarwood, who in those days had audiences of twenty two million because yeah. obviously it's only three channels. He. Um, you know, he was, I, as you say, he was on Frost, he was on Parkinson. You know, his, his Leeds career began and ended on Calendar with the former Labour MP, Austin Mitchell. I, I really don't think there's another, there's a politician or a pop star or, you know, an Israeli spoon bender like Yuri Geller, <laughs> but a higher profile in the 70s than Brian Clough. I really don't, because uh, he he realised that um, the, the, the platform football could offer him, you know, he had he, he, he was on multi-media platforms everywhere in a pre-digital age. He was he, he was literally everywhere, wasn't he? Yeah, and, and they were doing it, as I say, in real time. As it yeah. was evolving, the management and the coaches and the players were all evolving with the game. And, and there was such a, a shape shift of, of football. And I think more so in that decade than any other decade. But again, yeah. Cloughy, he was, I mean, he, he won the league with Derby. He then at the yeah. end of the decade, he won the league with, uh, with, with Nottingham Forest and then yeah. the European uh, Cup. He was very unlucky not to win the European Cup with Derby yeah. County. A notorious match with Juventus where Absolutely. he felt that, as he said, that, you know, describes the Italians as cheats or, or words to that effect. I mean, you know, there was a while where um, Brian Clough said, I, I don't think I don't think he was genuinely thinking of it, but he almost decided to, to leave football and go and go and join ITV um, as their as their um, their their kind of main football um, person, if you like. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that he ever would have seriously done that because I think to his to his core, it was a football a football man. But he, <clears throat> perhaps more than anyone, um, embraced punditry and and the media 
Um, you know, no football manager has probably done that since. I don't no, think. No, and the way I that really he, don't. the way that Cloughy talked to the media as yeah. well. You know, yeah. you people, because he always talked down at them, didn't he? Always talked yeah. down at the media, and even with match of the day, what you need to do is less of that and more football. And then when yeah. when you know the the sky was coming on, I mean Cloughy. You know, in, in those days, he was not the Brian Clough that he was in the early days when he was so very successful. But he'd say, yeah. you people, what are you going to do? You're going to run football. And, and it's, you know, it's it's the people's game. Cloughy was a massive socialist that believed yeah. in, in simple things. And his Nottingham Forest and Derby County teams both played the passing game, a simple game. You know, Cloughy would say, you know, the there's grass up there on the clouds. You play football, but it's down on the floor. So that's where yeah. you play football on the yeah. deck. That's right. I mean, what's what's interesting is I've I've lo- I obviously watched a lot of football when I was writing this book, and and some of the football, to be fair, hasn't really stood the test of time. It's quite agricultural and quite clunky. But I tell you, who looks still looks amazing is Clough's Derby team from '72. Yeah. Everything on the floor. Silky smooth passing, fast, incisive. Alan Hinton in those white boots out on the wing, um, you know, part putting into to Kevin Hector. Derby and, and and actually, unfortunately for England, that amazing West Germany team from '72 that took England apart at Wembley. They still look now as if they could live with and probably beat a lot of you know a lot of teams in in the modern era. So Clough's foot, the, the the football that Derby in particular played was fantastic you're right you mentioned that the, the white boots there you know Inton yeah. and Alan Ball both wore those white boots and on yeah. such muddy pitches it was incredible that you could still yeah. see the white That's boots right. on match of the day I remember them painting the penalty spot on the baseball ground I yeah. think Jerry Daly was stepping up to take the penalty the pitches that we had in those days you had an array of teams that could win the league in the 70s I mean there's a great yeah. book out about Alan Hudson's team at Stoke City that knew yeah. He won the league Tony in Waddington, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Waddington was a Waddington. I mean, I've never met Tony. Um, I've read about Tony, but Alan talks so fondly about Tony. I almost feel that I do know Tony Waddington and the way Tony's brain worked. And, and if only Tony Waddington was England manager because he knew how to treat players. Inside yeah. forwards, he used to love to bring him from, particularly Man United, with his, his friend yeah. uh, Matt Busby because he was a, a Busby baby, was there at Man United. His career didn't work out. He's manager of Stoke City for 17 seasons. We had longevity of managers. Yeah. We knew all our managers in the 70s. We didn't yeah. change him every season. And when I say no. every season, I mean winter, spring, summer and, and you know, um, that's how we do it today. There's some teams that have three or four managers in one season now. Like Watford, yeah, Absolutely, that's right. I mean, yeah. you mentioned about it being a level, more level playing field, and I think you're, I think you're right. Um, I mean, I think the 70s is the era of the provincial club. I mean, yeah. you've got Derby and Forest, who who win the league, and Forest go on to win the European Cup. But you've got you know, you've got teams winning the FA Cup from the second division like Southampton and Sunderland. You've got Ipswich winning it as, as well. And I think, it, you know, it was more of a level playing field. Um, and I think you've also got a lot of, you mentioned Stoke, 
Um, a lot of what ifs. I mean, yep. you've got the fact that QPR only missed out on the title by one point in 1976, haven't you? Yeah. You've got the the Manchester City team of 72 um, being, you know, foiled at the, at the last. Um, there's a lot of a lot of what ifs, and I think that adds to the you know the drama of the of the 70s. But yeah, it, it was more of a level playing field because you know in those days teams shared their gate receipts. Um, um, you know, rather than the home team keeping them all now, which kind of is, is swayed in favour of the bigger clubs, isn't it? Um, you know, it's pre-sponsorship, pre-TV deals. So, yeah, it, it was more of a level playing field. And I think that that is probably, as I said at the start, you know, what makes the 70s quite attractive or 70s football quite attractive to many people even now. Absolutely. And some of the golden goals that we saw in the 70s, uh, none mm. greater than in 1972 with Ronnie Radford when uh, yes. he scored that wonderful goal. <clears throat> I had the pleasure of Pat Howard's company for a podcast. And yeah. Pat said it, it, it whistled over his head. And he said, I looked at it and thought, it's got half a chance of going in that ass. Yeah. And that was John Matson's first game, of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was. He was. I think he was on a. He was a kind of like a trainee with BBC. Somebody and, was ill, I wasn't think, they? Yeah, yeah. And he got the game because no one else could be bothered to go because mm. it was a replay that had been called off um, several times. Yeah. And you know, Malcolm McDonald always says the game probably shouldn't have been played because it was the pitch was horrendous. But it just had. They had to get on with it and and play it. And you know, as, as Ronnie Radford says, you know, normally his shots ended up in the car park behind. I understand, but it is even now a ridiculous shot. I mean, there's a there's a there's a there's footage of it going in from another angle, um, on online somewhere from the other side, and it, it looks even more incredible then because it actually takes fully two or three seconds to hit the back of the net. Yeah, it's still so rising. Perfectly, yeah, yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's so perfectly struck. You know, Ian McFall in the goal is, I mean, he's never going to get near it. Malcolm McDonald's in the other half. And he said, from the way even Ronnie Radford shaped his shoot, he just thought he got no chance of saving that pal to Ian McFall. But it's probably, I think, the, um, probably the 70s moment, certainly from an FA Cup point of view, um, that win. Because, you know, it's, it's everything that people perhaps think 70s football was. You know, you've got um, you've got the mud, you've got the, the you know the, the the English winter, you've got the the packed terraces, um, you've got the, the you know the friendly pitch invasion. I mean, pitch invasions in the seventies were not always friendly by any means. Yeah. So it's almost like an an idyll of what of what people think English football used to be like. And maybe for that afternoon, it, it was it was perfect. Absolutely, and we had minor strikes, and we had three-day weeks, and I think yeah. the game was played during uh, the day because we couldn't put the floodlights on during the during the night because of the power cuts, etc. The fact That's that Hereford right. might not have had proper floodlights—I mean, in modern <laughs> times, you probably have four Ford Fiestas at each corner, and that'd probably give you more light than what the floodlights yeah. would back in those days. But what I mean, in the next? Yeah, I mean, in the next round, when Hereford played West Ham, yes. they they had a replay. Yeah, they drew nil on Edgar Street. They went, they played West Ham in a midweek replay, and you know people expected one man and his dog to turn up. It's forty two thousand there. Yeah. I mean, Nick Hornby wrote in Fever Pitch that when Arsenal played Derby in an FA Cup replay, again Nick Hornby thought I oh, was the only one there. Arsenal pulled in sixty two thousand. 
Nick Hornby was like, why isn't everyone at work? Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. wonder. No wonder the country's going to the dogs kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, those those midweek replays were, were, some, were, were, were yeah, it came about because of the, the minor strikes. There was a shortage of, of coal. And so, yeah, they had to cut back on energy output. It's, um, yeah, interesting. And Santos as well, they played at Sheffield Wednesday and there was a similar amount of fans there at Wednesday that day as there was at yeah. Villa Park. You know, we had American teams like the New York Cosmos, the Tampa Bay Rowdies. They come over and they play games in the 70s. So even over in America with the NASL, they'd come over and they would tour. And, and, and it, it wasn't just the English game. It was just a, it was a global game back then. It was almost like, do you remember Kerry Packer's Flying Circus when he invented yeah. the One Day Internationals? For, it was yeah. the football equivalent of of all of that rolled into one, and and it it was just a pioneering, groundbreaking decade. Yeah, no, purple it was. I mean, suits as well in finals. What was all that about? In what, sorry? Purple, purple tracksuits track in finals. 1974, yeah, yeah. if you look at it. Malcolm yeah, come out, yeah. they got purple tracksuit tops. Yeah. That was because one of the directors had got a sports shop and they couldn't flog yeah. them. Yeah, the vivid colours. I mean, Rodney Marsh yeah. said that when he when he um, appeared in his first Manchester derby at uh, Man United, um, you know, they, they the city subs or he was sorry, he was sub on the bench. He warmed up in a in a banana yellow tracksuit designed by Malcolm Allison, which, as you can imagine, got a lot of attention off the of Stratford end. But then he um, he uh, Manchester City uh, won and, and Rodney Marsh, Rodney Marsh score, which kind of silenced them. But, yeah, the flamboyance of the swagger of the 70s, you know, not afraid to experiment in, in that way. Definitely. And Manchester United get relegated in the 70s as well. What was all that about? I mean, they'd won the European Cup in 68, and then six yeah. seasons after, they're getting relegated. It was it, it was a, it was a decade where literally anything and everything could happen, could happen. and did. Because I mean, yeah, in the mid 70s, I mean, yeah, as you say, Man United went down in part because you know Matt Busby perhaps did, allowed that 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 68 European Cup when he seemed to age and. Yeah. You know, George Best went off the rails. You know, he said he got, he just got fed up with the fact that, you know, Charlton and Law and the others were, were ageing and he got, got fed up. But, um, you know, Busby Busby left and then he, because he was direct to the, the other, the newer managers like um, Franco Farrell, you know, felt intimidated. But, it, you so know, in the, mid, in, the mid, yeah. in the mid-70s, yeah, you've got, um, you know, Arsenal and Tottenham. I mean, Tottenham went down, Arsenal were in relegation dogfights for two years in a, in a row. It was yeah. it was a real topsy turvy, bizarre decade. And I love the chapter in your book as well, the superstars. What oh, a yeah. series that was! I know it wasn't yeah. football, but it was football players, and it really showed how the footballers. I wouldn't say were unfit, but the cyclists and like judo. Uh, Brian Jacks, of course, was so successful. But Malcolm done well. Kevin Keegan done well. Stan Bowles only took part for a bit. Oh, sorry, you still there? Oh, like, sorry, you cut out for a sec. Sorry. I was like, and Stan <laughs> Bowles only took part for a bit. 
Literally, yeah. I mean, he yeah. he couldn't he couldn't swim, he couldn't run, he couldn't no. canoe, he couldn't shoot a gun. In fact, he shot the table, didn't he? Bless him. He shot. He, he famously got the lowest <laughs> score ever in Superstars of Eight Marks. Yeah. Shot a hole in the table, and then yeah. ended up torpedoing in his canoe Malcolm McDonald, whom he'd never got on with anyway, no, and uh, they got on even worse. Yeah. After, after that, and they both they both sank. And you know, famously at the end, Stan Bowles promised. Um, the, the, the woman in charge of the, you know, the the, the athletes, if you could decide, or the superstars, if his Stan Bowles was a superstar, that he'd do better next time. And the woman pointedly said, "There won't be a next time, Mr. Bowles." But again, <laughs> and that, that was the was, end of his superstars career. But that was Stanley. I mean, a, yeah. no greater maverick on the pitch and off the pitch than Stan Bowles in the seventies. And that QPR team was one of the great entertaining sides, wasn't it? I think that season yeah. when they narrowly... Because at the end of the football season, they were top of the pile, but Liverpool had got to go to Wolves a couple of seasons prior. Leeds had got to go to Wolves in 72. But it was different dynamics when um, when Liverpool yeah. went there, wasn't yeah. it? Well, that's it. I mean, I mean that shows that in in the seventies, in the end, perhaps pragmatism wins out over flair. I mean, that QPR team, and I mentioned earlier that Derby and West Germany were very easy on the ice. So was yeah. that QPR team with Bowles and Jerry Francis and Dave Thomas. You know, who always played with his yeah. with his socks rolled down on the wing. Um, and yeah, they were wonderfully entertaining. Um, in the end, though, Liverpool, you know, were dogged and and, and kept going. And I think that you know, David. David Fairclough um, helped them quite a lot to uh, to to win the league that year. There were a lot of nil nils or potential nil nils, which Fairclough turned with with late goals, and Super that's where sub. he started to get the nickname Super Sub mm-hmm. before he really cemented it against Saint Etienne in the European Cup the the next year. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it. That's that that you could almost say that that sums up the seventies. QPR being pipped by. By Liverpool, pragmatism, perhaps winning out over flair, out just, you know, ultimately. Absolutely, I, I love the chapter as well. The black pioneers, because there was yeah. uh, an element of racism. There's a great book out there, the uh, Black Pioneers as well, by uh, Bill Glaze, um, and the other fella's name escapes me. Yeah, I've moment. got it. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, another great, a great time for. Not so much off the pitch, because they did take a lot of stick. But Cyril, in particular, stared down a racist, didn't they? And changed the mindset of a lot of idiots that was giving the boys such a, a such such aggravation and stick. They were throwing bananas on the pitch. Some of yeah. the songs that they were throwing at them was, was awful. I have yeah. to say, I didn't see anything as a kid at Birmingham City, my team, I didn't see any form of racism there. And then Birmingham famously had a gang that started in the early 80s that was one of the first multicultural uh, hooligan gangs. But Birmingham has always been a city that's that's embraced multiculturalism. And West Bromwich Albion and Big Run, of course, had the three degrees. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the abuse that the uh, that the relatively small number of black players went through in the seventies was 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 horrendous. And um, <clears throat> you know, yeah, I mean, with Cyril Regis, I spoke. I was lucky enough to speak to Cyril when he was when he was um, in fine on fine in fine fettle um, a few years back. And you know, what he said is that the black players in that era, there was no kind of network. There were there there was no one to to kind of complain to about the treatment because that was that was life you know they had to just get on with it and and almost like almost like you know turn turn the other cheek um and i think that famously west brom who were kind of briefly in the winter of 78 perhaps you know english football's neck you know big big thing as the enemy just described them they played this amazing game at old trafford against manu where west brom won five three um, a fantastic display of football by Atkinson's West Brom and, and you know, Laurie Cunningham cuts in from the left and you know, the abuse he's getting from from the fans is, is just deafening from Man United fans. But it's Gerald Sinstad who actually is the first TV commentator to call out the racists. Um, you know, and he starts to say the abuse the black players are receiving and then t- he, he stops because Tony Brown scores, but he, he talks about the, the lack of sportsmanship there. But, you know, that that's you know very very unusual for the time because it was just that was that was you know that was that was football um and brendan batson said um you know that when uh, when he joined west brom he thought that he thought that the the abuse would die down because he's you know playing in the top flight now and he says all it, all that happens is it gets it gets louder i guess the idea of a multicultural britain to some people in in the, in the 70s was was just was just not not you know not not going to happen they 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 wouldn't have it and the sight of three black players playing for west brom um was uh, was as as batson said just obviously too much for for some people that is the sad reflection on where 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 britain was in the, in the 70s i think Absolutely, and that uh, football's black pioneers by Bill Hearn and David Gleave. Uh, fantastic, Gleave, yeah, yeah, fantastic yeah. read. Book. Great book. And, uh, I love yeah. the bit about uh, about Millwall as well, because lots of people always perceive Millwall uh, to be a bit of a rogue set of supporters, but they really embrace their black players. And and over the road at Chelsea, of course, um, they didn't, did they? No, no. I mean, I, I spoke to Phil Walker and Trevor Lee, who were at Millwall in, in the 70s. And, um, you know, again, <laughs> Walker and Lee, um, Phil Walker said to me, well, you know, we know all the abuse hurled at us at a non-league level. We thought we might as well get paid for it. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing, the, the kind of situation that black players um, um, found themselves in. But, yeah, Millwall fans... Um, fully embraced walker and um walker and trevor lee um because they were you know they were very much wholehearted players and and the boys said they you know they fitted in straight away there um and i think it's an interesting story because obviously you know millwall fans have uh, in the 70s their reputations as, as hooligans with yeah. harry the dog and and uh, you know everyone else as as shown in the panorama documentary comes across but yet they did they did take walker and lee to to their hearts so it's a story which i thought was worth telling because i'm not sure that many people know about that Absolutely. They took uh, their first black player, Frankie Peterson, to heart as well, who uh, didn't play for long, 
but uh, was mm. a tremendous football player, a friend of Barry Silkman, and Silky tells a wonderful story of, uh, of Frankie Peterson. But yeah, I mean, even the the, the TV Fra- program. Frank Peterson, he um he he had a did you know that he 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 had a walk on part in the movie of Porridge? Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was just uh, just going to talk about that because. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry no, for no. In there. No, we, we had like We're porridge. In so when we could get that story <laughs> in. <laughs> we had porridge. We had on the buses because Bob McNabb. Again, yeah. not just in magazines, but they were in prominent. Uh, comedy programs like Porridge and On the Buses, and two of the biggest programs that we had in the seventies. Footballers involved yeah. in that. No, definitely, absolutely. I mean, it, it's yeah. There's, I mean, I, I think Bob McNabb, as you say, uh, he was he was supposed to be with a team. They never ended up playing, did they? In the end, I think he had a was it, McNabb wasn't in action in it, but he was he was in On the Buses, wasn't he? Yes, he was on the buses. And, yeah, definitely. And you've got all the all the links to football yeah. in Porridge as well, especially about Mackay. You know, alluding to Dave Mackay, but obviously there uh, the joke saying that uh, 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 Mr. Mackay, the prison warder. So yeah, comedy and comedy and football, as well as music and football, have have quite a lot of links in the seventies as well. Because because Malcolm McDonald was mentioned on a couple of occasions in the Likely Lads, wasn't he? Yeah, well, they had that uh, that that um, scenario in the Likely Lads on the one episode where England was playing and, and they didn't want to know the score, yeah. didn't they? That's and, right. And That's I- right. iconic. But, you know, even Pike in um, Dad's Army, West uh, Aston Villa, wasn't he? He got the, the Villa scarf, Pike. Don't tell him your name, Pike. And and then, <laughs> yeah. of course, we had Alf Garnet as well with the West Ham. You know, again, yeah. having a go at the racists. But a lot of people thought that Alf Garnet, Warren Mitchell was a racist, but he was so clever. Yeah. It was a mirror effect. And when I was saying about um, uh, Chelsea, that Paul Canneville that made his debut, and he was warming up against, I think it was Crystal Palace, and got such a volley of abuse, turned around, it was his own supporters. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It's a different. It's a different age. I mean, I'm hoping to speak to Paul Canaville when for the '80s follow-up. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've, uh, so hopefully I'll reach out to him soon as well. But yeah, I mean, yeah, what those, what the, what the black players go through at the, in that era is, is, is truly shocking, isn't it? It is, and when you look at it, you know, it was only what 50 years ago. So you know, we're not talking about you know the dark ages or you know when um, I don't know the ice age or something that's hundreds and thousands of years ago, we're talking about something that's pretty much on our doorstep and colour mm. television had just come out. It's, you know, what what was happening in that decade was, was just, was quite incredible and, and extraordinary. And, uh, and FA Cup semi-finals, of course, were at neutral venues in the 70s. Yeah. Not at Wembley Stadium. <clears throat> no, no, that's right. Either, either at Villa Park or, or Hillsborough. Yeah. Um, where yeah, yeah, that's right. Neutral, not no, yeah, that's right. I mean, again, you know, some some would say that that was that was better, and it, it kept uh, Wembley more kind of more more precious and more pure. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, you were. How many players did you actually talk to? Because you in your acknowledgements, I'm looking there and I'm yeah. like, wow, Colin Addison, Alan Ball, Brendan Batson, Kevin Beattie, The Beach, Georgie Best, and Bowles in Boya. I mean, the yeah. list is absolutely incredible. It's I like a who's who's of football, 15, isn't it? 
yeah, it's yeah, phenomenal. it was about about fifty. I was very lucky to speak to. Well, you mentioned, you know, George Best. Um, I interviewed him in in two thousand and four. Um, you know, he'd uh, it was a year after he'd had his liver transplant, and um, he was actually <clears throat> as you know as well as he was at any time, I guess, later in life. He was obviously mm-hmm. frail and fragile, but he'd lost a lot of the puff he had around his face when he yeah. was drinking. And he actually looked, you know, quite a lot like the, the handsome athlete that blazed the trail um, in, in football in, in the 60s. And, and he was amazing. I, I, found, I found George Best very quite, quite a sort of beguiling company because I thought that George Best was very, very bright but yeah, wired cool. differently to anyone else I'd ever spoken to as, as a footballer. I think um, I found out later he got approached by Mensa because he had a very high IQ. Yeah, cool. And when I met him, he was doing these crossword, these cryptic crossword yeah, puzzles. Yeah. I don't know a bloody clue what, he, yeah. what, the, what the responses were. And these, this advanced to do code was like, blimey. So he's, he was like a problem solver. And that probably reflected how he was on the pitch. You know, he could you know very quickly um solve problems in his, in his head which i guess you have to do as a footballer you see things differently um but i think that you know he he just said he, what what struck me was he said that everything he enjoyed about the fame and the football in the 60s he just stopped enjoying by the by the early 70s i think he got you know world weary of everything very very quickly yeah, you're absolutely right, because Alan Hudson says that George was such a clever, such a bright lad. They never yeah. exchanged telephone numbers, but when George had moved down to London, he'd be, his pub was just on the King's Road there, and George had his pub, Alan had his pub, and they'd you know, go and see each other, have a drink together, and he said he'd just go through the crossword. Very, very clever yeah. lad. And, yeah, uh, very clever. And, and football songs as well, of course. I mean, it started in 1970, we back home, and, and probably ended in 79, didn't it? With or 70, 77, 78, with we've got the whole world in our hands with the yeah. Nottingham Forest. Yeah, I mean, back home is the first football uh, record to go to number one. Um, sold in a huge, huge number of, of, uh, of, of copies. And it was, you know, it was Bill Martin's idea, a, a Scott. Uh, that didn't go down very well with Alf Ramsey, who was not, notoriously A, anti-Scottish and B, notoriously anti-show business. Yeah. And it, it was his boys of 66 that turned him around to it and, you know, said it might be, might be fun. And they, they loved it. They used to sing it on the way to um, the games. And, you know, Jack Charlton asked him if he was ever... If Ramsey was going to sing it, and he's not singing that bloody racket, um, <laughs> you can imagine Alf saying it now, can't you? Yeah. But yeah, the whole world in their hands was by is by uh, Paper Ace, Paper Ace, wasn't it? Uh, a Nottingham Nottingham band, yeah, yeah. and that, that also was very very popular at the at the time as well. And I can still still got the song in my head these days as well. And blue is the colour, probably my <coughs> favourite football song yeah. of all time, the 1972 League Cup final, because we didn't just yeah. have the Cup, the FA Cup, we had the League Cup, and again, yeah. an array of different winners of the League Cup. It, it, it wasn't the age of a monopoly on trophies, you know, no. we've said that before, earlier in the podcast, we had a lot of teams that won, and I'd, without looking probably say that was the last decade where football was scattered around the winners enclosures because we certainly had that in the 50s we had it in the 40s and you would have had it before Mm. as well but I think from the 80s onwards I think if we drew up how many winners of various cup competitions that we had home and abroad I think the winners enclosure would be shrinking 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think by the end of the seventies, I mean, Liverpool is starting to dominate in terms of the in terms yeah. of the league. But as you say, in the eighties, there are fewer winners of the FA Cup and the league, and obviously yeah. that trajectory carries on into the nineties and and beyond. So yeah, yeah, it goes back to what we were saying, wasn't it, about it yeah. being a level a level playing field. So although they were pioneers, they were trailblazers. They were the last generation as well. Again all-encompassing that decade and I don't think there's been another decade like it and never will be another decade because you're not going to get the stories of of the players did any of the players tell you some fantastic stories I mean I I do at the end of our podcast tales at Mavericks tell and some of the stories are absolutely phenomenal the guys got up to all sorts you don't have it today no, no, that's right. I mean, I think I think what what makes it such a creative decade, in in a sense, you're saying is that you, as I say, got you've got colour TV which elevates football, mm. but there's the fact that the guys don't earn a fortune means yeah. they're accessible to you know everyone. So Revy, you know, gets Don Revy as we said earlier gets approached by Bert Patrick Mavel. He just walks in and sees him. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, you've got you've got um. You know, Paul Trevillian just just turns up and and meets him. I mean, these days you've got so much security and agents surrounding players, you'd never get yeah. to get that level of access. And that's what I found writing his book. I mean, you know, you mentioned how many players I was lucky enough to interview because the guys just out there. I mean, for this, but Rodney Marsh, I just DM'd on DM'd him on Twitter. He was back within half an hour. I mean, Rodney Marsh, yeah. blimey. You know, imagine, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's the, say the equivalent of Jack Grealish today. Imagine just DMing Jack Grealish on Twitter. You've got no and then coming, yeah, whenever, whenever, you, whenever you want. Mm-hmm. So, and George Best, I just basically went to the theme pub in Chelsea and sat and waited for him. <laughs> and the barman goes, he'll be in in a bit. And there he was in for half an hour and he got to speak to him. And yeah, it, it's, the, it's the last generation where you would be able to, to do that. Definitely. Absolutely. And what that means is that you can get a real kind of cross fertilization of ideas in a way that you couldn't possibly get today. Yeah, absolutely. And players that had <coughs> testimonials, of course, in those days. And when you look at um, the the amount of appearances that players played for a certain club, you could almost name the one to 11. I mean, I'll give you a great example. Steve Perryman, how many, I know he's, he's Tottenham and the, the North London rivalry. Uh, but I mean, how many games did Steve Perryman play for? Uh, play for the Spurs? You wouldn't yeah. get that again today, would you? You couldn't get it. No, no, you wouldn't. That's uh, that's uh, yeah. I mean, you get you get you get occasional examples like mm. Tony Adams at Arsenal and Paul Scholes and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's getting increasingly rare, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a fantastic trip down memory lane. And I thank you so much, John, for your time. It's a fantastic yeah, pleasure. Read. A lovely book. Oh, it absolutely does. What's the easiest way that people, because ultimately what we want people to do is buy the book, because it is a fantastic book. And it's a thick book as well. The the thing that I love with books is that you own it and it's there. It's a work of art. It's a it without books and podcasts, the the game and all the memories and the the awards and the goal scoring charts, they all seem to erode over time. It's like the sea going over on the pebbles and it just washes them away. And, and it's something yeah. that should never happen. And with books like yours, 
um, and podcasts as well and talking to players and getting the memories about those halcyon days of the golden decade of football. The memories never die. So, um, so thank you very much, sir, for this. It's monumental. And I'm looking forward Absolute to your 1980s you. book as well. Yes, yes, that will be out in a in a in a in a cut in a couple of years. Um, but yeah, but you said the best way the best way to get hold of it. Well, it's it's available from all the normal outlets, you know, be they online or yeah. or, or you know, it's in, in Waterstones as well. But it's on Amazon, it's on on the Hive, it's on uh, Smiths Waterstones. So it's it's uh, it's everywhere. Uh, hopefully that uh, where everyone where people can get hold of it who want it. And how can people hook up with you and say, John, that was a fantastic read. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the best way is, is Twitter. So it, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at John Sperling one. Can I thank you again, sir? It's been an absolute pleasure, a joy and an honour to talk about the literally it was the beautiful game. And we didn't even get to talk about the World Cups, of course, because the Dutch did play the beautiful game. They played oh, they total did. football. And, they did. Yeah. And, and we, we just had everything in the 70s. We did. In abundance. Absolutely. And it's just Good, fantastic. bad and ugly. Absolutely, and that was a film as well, of course, wasn't it? Butch Cats yeah, in the Sundance Kid, you know. That's right, that's right. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, a joy. Thank you so much, and um, we Thanks will reconvene when uh, in a couple of years' time when you do your eighties book, because I'll be looking love, forward I'd to reading that. that as well. Thank you very much. Cheers, John. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. All Thank right. you, sir. Cheers. And All thanks right. for listening, Bye-bye. guys. Cheers. Good night. Cheers. Cheers.